Welcome to KISS FAQ Song Stories. In this series, we'll focus on the histories of some of KISS's best and least known songs. In this episode, Nowhere to Run, originally released on the KISS Killers compilation in 1982. This song was one of Paul's favorites of the four new cuts released on that album, and was the only one solely written by him. According to Paul, on the first KISS Last Licks promo album liner notes, I wrote this one about a woman who was in a relationship she wanted out of, found someone else, but then ran back to what was familiar, safe, and miserable. I don't remember much about recording it except Gene, Eric, and me doing backup vocals. He later expanded on the subject in the 2001 Kiss Box set liner notes, and also Behind the Mask a few years later, revealing that the woman in question was one with whom he was having an affair. The song was Paul's musical letter to her, providing a catharsis for him in the aftermath of the breakup, making the piece very much autobiographical. One must wonder whether Deadly Weapon was a more brutal expression of the same sentiment, since both dated from around the same time. Perhaps echoing Paul's appreciation of other genres of music, there are some interesting melodic and lyrical similarities between this song and the Supremes' Back in My Arms. The Kiss Killers compilation was an emergency stopgap measure, but one that was permitted by the 1980 contract after the band had missed the delivery deadline for The Elder the previous year. Basically, both the North American and International contracts of April 1980 read, during the term if any LP of the minimum recording obligation shall not be delivered within 13 months following the delivery of the prior LP of the minimum recording obligation, company shall have the right to compile and release in the territory a best of LP prior to the delivery of the next LP of the minimum recording obligation. However, only the international arm, Phonogram, opted to release the album in 1982. While documentation is lacking, reading the contract's terms for a live album, only counting towards the band's minimum recording obligation terms, if it included two newly recorded songs, it seems likely that the inclusion of four songs on this compilation was part of an arrangement or agreement to have the compilation count towards fulfilling their contractual obligations, at least in the rest of the world. But that is in the future. The beginnings of the song's story is equally interesting. Even before the band had returned from the Antipodean tour in December 1980, Allcoin management were actively trying to recruit a producer for the next KISS studio project. Due to the activities of the year, with Peter's departure from the band and Eric's arrival, and the delay in touring, the band were behind schedule for delivering a completed album to the label by June the 16th, 1981. International affiliates were clamoring for new product in the aftermath of Kisteria, and the pressure was on. During January 1981, KISS started rehearsals at SIR Studios to start the formalization of the creative process for new material. Pre-production sessions commenced at Ace's then-new Ace in the Hole Studios in early February with Rob Freeman engineering. The sessions were important. With a tight timeline, there would certainly have been pressure on top of the emotional and physical impact of what 1980 had embodied. These would also be the first recording sessions both with Eric Carr and drums and at Ace's studio. It was a tryout for both and a way for each to get broken in, allowing Gene and Paul to determine how Eric sounded in the studio. It was all critical to plans for 1981. 
Deadly Weapon, Feel Like Heaven, and Nowhere to Run were the only songs elevated to an advanced stage during these initial sessions, from the various ideas and jams that the band members had worked on or had already demoed on their own. And only Deadly Weapon made it to the lead guitar overdub stage. Nowhere to Run was left mostly complete, but lacked the requisite lead guitar overdubs. Like the other songs recorded, Nowhere to Run essentially featured the band playing live, with Paul and Ace sharing the rhythm work. Eric Carr impressed Rob Freeman. He was humble and he was still amazed at his fortune from going from a bar band to playing with Kiss. While his personality was shy and quiet at the time, Rob recalled, when it was time to play, Eric was no longer quiet. He was an amazing drummer, technically and creatively, and treble kick drum competent to boot. He committed to every performance, whether rehearsal or recorded take, with all he had, never holding back anything. I really enjoyed working with Eric and I relished the drum tracks I recorded with him. The pair had worked collaboratively to find the best location to set up Eric's drums in the room, and once they found a spot that Rob described as sounding acoustically lively but not too bright sounding, Eric completed the setup of the drums and the tuning of the kit before Rob mic'd it. Most of the mics were placed close to the kit, with a pair of overheads and additional ambient mics to capture the room's character. After the bed tracks had been completed, Sessions moved to Penny Lane Studios in New York City, a more convenient location for the other three members of the band and Rob. It was a studio the band had used previously and that Howard Marks often used for commercial jingles. It would be there that overdubs, including vocals, were recorded. Paul's vocal wasn't even intended to be a keeper take. Instead, it was a warm-up test to check the mic levels. But once completed, it was clear that they had a keeper and it would be pointless to try and do better. Versions of the three songs were mixed on February the 25th, 1981. However, the sessions came to an abrupt end when Bob Ezrin was recruited to serve as the producer for the band's 1981 album. He arrived at Ace in the Hole to take possession of the band's master tapes from those initial sessions. Freeman would be paid off for his work with the band. Bullock Coin recounted in an interview later released on the 13 classic Kiss stories, the selection of a producer was more a matter of pragmatism. No one was in the mood to either write and or record an album. As the pressure came down on us to come up with a new album, I realized that the guys weren't writing, nor did they feel like recording a new album, and I thought that the only person I knew that knew them well enough and could get us through this was Bob Ezrin, an incredibly bright producer who was capable of helping them write as well as producing the album. However, Bob opted to not continue working on the songs when that project recording restarted in May 1981. Instead, he walked away from a nearly complete and fully formed song in pursuit of that misguided concept. This might be partially explained by the band members' observations of a feeling of sameness to the material that they'd recorded earlier in the year, and it not feeling particularly special or outstanding. Even before the PTSD was over from the Elder, steps were being taken to try and prevent the band from sinking. Ace's tire tracks were fresh in the parking lot after the Friday's TV broadcast in January 1982, but rather than return to New York immediately, Gene, Paul, Howard, and Bill met separately with a prospective producer. 
Michael James Jackson was hired by the Kiss Company in February 1982 to record the band, with the first five weeks being treated as a pre-production period after which the company could terminate him with no right to continue producing an album for delivery by August 1982. In essence, the Kiss Killers tracks became Jackson's audition for working with the band for the rest of the year. He was an off-the-wall pick to work with Kiss, and of unknown quantity as to whether he would be able to shepherd them in the studio successfully. At the beginning of the recording process, he was reviewing the material that the band had immediately to hand, and also partnering them with additional co-writers. The pre-elder master tape from Penny Lane was duplicated on March the 3rd, though by that time Peter Chris had already recorded Feel Like Heaven for his third solo album. Nowhere to Run was one of the first songs that the band played for Michael. He liked the song, no doubt partially influenced by it being what he described as a pretty well-formed idea by the time I heard it for the first time. More importantly, he thought that it was a well-written song and an indicator of how good the project could be. He had ideas for how the song could reach its full potential, though he was challenged by Gene's opinion that the band really didn't need a producer. Rolling in from recording sessions with James House, Michael and Kiss started recording in Studio C at the record plant on March the 29th, 1982. Nowhere to Run was one of the first songs they worked on, though the band would quickly be working on at least six songs. Basic replacement tracking took place on March the 30th, and notes suggest that the 1981 track was rebuilt from the ground up. By March the 31st, Jackson had a composite master of the song. With Ace Awall, an alternative arrangement needed to be made for lead guitar. It may be coincidental, but a coin management ad seeking a lead guitarist started appearing in the Village Voice on March the 16th. While that ad has George Suet as the contact at AMI, and it does specify the search was for a position in a new band, that could be subterfuge, and certainly some trade press such as Billboard read this ad and connected it to a replacement guitarist in KISS, as evidenced by an article in their April the 24th issue. Not surprisingly, KISS fell back to the services of Bob Kulik as their safety net. They needed the work done quickly, and there was no one better and familiar with what they wanted in order to do the task. But his recruitment for the session wasn't a panacea for the issue. There was confusion around the sort of lead guitar the band wanted for the song and the other new cuts that they were recording. They were second-guessing themselves stylistically, something that would become more of an issue as the year progressed. It certainly made for unpleasant sessions for Bob, who found the band difficult and told Ken Sharp for Behind the Mask. It wasn't what feels good anymore, it was how does this stack up against the competition? How does this stack up against Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes? They were beginning to overanalyze everything. Honestly, my attitude was, I was tired that they couldn't recognize something that was good anymore. It got bad to the point where I didn't really want to be there. But if he didn't want to be there, he still got the job done. counted in behind the mask also listen to that solo on nowhere to run and that huge overbend that was me being totally frustrated i could see the writing on the wall they were searching for something that wasn't there 
Bob later described the solo to Jimmy Kay from Canada's The Metal Voice as being fiercely aggressive where necessary and melodic in the places where it needed melody support. He also suggested that he had a good time playing and that the session was a lot of fun to do. Kiss was trying to do five different things at once and that made it very distracting and more challenging for all involved. Trying to find a new guitar player, trying to finish one record and working on another record, it was pretty comprehensive. Following a final day and a half session, the tracks were mastered at Alan Zenz on April the 16th. Killers did respectably on its release, reaching a world high chart position of number six in Norway. In Australia and Japan, it charted at 21 and 27 respectively, while only reaching 41 in Sweden and 42 in the United Kingdom. No single charted in any of the countries where one was released, though several market affiliates selected Nowhere to Run as the single to promote the release with. Interestingly, the song was rehearsed for Paul Stanley's solo tour in 1989, but that band never performed it, probably due to the challenging vocal and its obscurity. In the 2001 box set liners, Paul suggested that he envisaged the song to be much more powerful with the guitars and grander numbers and volume, which might explain why this was one of the two Killers tracks that were later remixed. The 1991 Kiss Last Licks liner note suggested that at least at the time, Paul didn't have a problem with the song, commenting, I like this one, good emotion. We were trying to recover and regain our bearings after our strange journey into the land of the elders. Nowhere to Run was originally recorded for Killers, a compilation for Europe featuring one side of new songs. The song was also one of the first Killer studio tracks to receive official release in the United States when it was included on the box set. While the song had been included as a B-side on an assortment of international singles, the version was not a remix, but rather a re-EQ for each release. Since then, the Kiss Killers and Penny Lane recordings have been released in the US as part of the 2022 Creatures of the Night Super Deluxe Edition, along with an instrumental take number 11. It may seem to be gratuitous bass filling, yet the instrumental provides the track stripped back of vocals and leads and allows closer inspection of the underlying instrumentation without the bridge section. For most fans, it was very exciting on the Kiss Cruise in 2017 when Bob and Bruce Kulick resurrected the song rightfully giving it a moment of glory amongst glories. Hey,